Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Welcome to Life Over Coffee. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. At Life Over Coffee, we exist to produce content. We want to give you hope and help for you and others. And one of the ways that we do this, in fact, the primary way that we do this, according to our mission statement, is that we want to spark conversations for transformation. And so our big idea here is to create these resources. We also have a school, a completely online school, where people come to learn how to do discipleship at a high level. Some people call it biblical counseling. That is just fine. But my passion is to train the church in doing discipleship well, for caring for one another. And the way that we do it here at Life Over Coffee is that we do create resources in many different formats. There is reading, there is watching videos, webinars. We have hundreds upon hundreds of videos from all kinds of lengths, from 15 seconds to to one hour. Uh, We also have podcasts as well, and so everything we do, we try to put in a podcast format so people can participate in our resources in a medium that uh, is beneficial to them. And so I would encourage you to check out Life Over Coffee. We also have digital books. I produce one digital book every month, and those books are free in our store. And so there is a ton of resources at lifeovercoffee.com. And so I want you to take advantage of it. Almost all of our resources are free, and so please, you use them. And that's why our mission statement says we provide hope and help for you and for others. And the ideal for us is for you uh, to not only to experience transformation through the stuff that we produce, but also that you share our content with others. Now, something else that we do have are private forums at lifeovercoffee.com. Now, on those forums, we have people who ask us questions all the time. Literally every day, people are coming to us and asking their most important questions. Because of the hundreds of thousands of people that we reach, it is not possible for our 10-member team uh, to reach out and to communicate with everyone, and that's why we don't spend our time on social media because it is just overwhelming to be able to accommodate all the folks that come to us. But we do want to help, and so we do have a membership site where a number of people come. They do support us, and by the way, that's how come our resources are free. But Uh, because they support us, we want to give them a place to where they can talk to us and ask us questions. Sometimes the questions that they ask on our supporting member site, they're good and they're universal, meaning that they apply to everyone. And that's exactly what I want to share with you today. One of our supporting members asked, would you help me to help a difficult relative? And because that is a universal condition, we all have difficult relatives. Now, by the way, we are difficult relatives. So even as I say that, I I want you to know that I I have to address the log in my eye, and I trust that you address the log in yours before you go spec fishing. And so we're all difficult relatives. We all are difficult relatives 
friends. We can be annoying, especially those that live in proximity to us for a, a continuous amount of time. We do sin against each other. And so as I answer this question from our supporting member, I'm answering the question as though I am a difficult relative, and I trust that you will do the same. What we don't want to do is to look down on other people as though we are different from them, as though we are sinless, that we have reached a state of sinless perfection. We have not. Uh, we fall. We falter. We make mistakes. We sin against other people. We offend people. And so sometimes we become that difficult relative. And so what I want to share with you can apply to any of us, but perhaps you're in a situation like what my friend is, and he has a difficult relative in his life. And I'm going to read the question that he wrote in on our forums. And then what I want to do is I want to give you 10 ideas. 10 considerations, 10 things for you to think about if you have a difficult relative in your life. Now, in many of our lives, this really accentuates around the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. This holiday season, when we interact with relatives that we don't normally interact with during the year. And it's during that season where it's like, oh no, uh, what am I going to do as I go to this event or that party or this hospitality function and I'm going to meet that friend or that relative who is difficult? Well, I trust that th these things will help you as you navigate that relationship. Of course, this also applies throughout the year because sin does not take a holiday. Sin happens all the time. Now, if you want to check out more content around this idea of, of helping a difficult relative, what I would encourage you to do is to go to lifeovercoffee.com. Now, this is episode 494. That's how you will find it. Now, at 494, you'll have all the things that I'm about to share with you. You'll also have this presentation in an audio and video format that you can use, that you can share and benefit from. There's also internal linkage inside the show notes here, and so you'll find a lot of data that will help you when it comes to living with or navigating difficult relationships. So again, this is episode 494 at our website, lifeovercoffee.com. And the title of it is, Help Me, Help My Difficult Relative. I want to share with you the question that the person uh, that our supporting member wrote in. But first, I want to share a note that just came in uh, a couple of days ago, yesterday as a matter of fact, uh, from someone named Stella. And I want you to hear this because I want you to be encouraged uh, by the work here at Life Over Coffee, by what God is doing through this ministry. God is the primary causal agent. He is the one that brings change in all of our lives, but he does use the agency of humankind to accomplish it, accomplish his uh, grander purposes in our lives. And he has chosen to use Life Over Coffee in a few people's lives. And I want you to read a note that Stella put on Facebook about how God has used this ministry to help her, and I trusted it would encourage you. Stella said, thank you for putting all your gifts together to make something so uh, meaningful. I was grateful 
to stumble upon your ministry during the pandemic and the most devastating time of my personal life. So very blessed to follow and share the teaching here at Life Over Coffee. And so, Stella, if you stumble upon uh, this, um, this, this, uh, uh, <laughs> what I'm doing here, if you stumble upon it, I want you to know, thank you for putting that note uh, on Facebook. Thank you for encouraging us because, you know, when we produce this content, we're not talking to anyone. Uh, we, we are producing it in a studio, and then I put it out there, and I just don't know how God will use it. And then sometimes somebody will come around, and they will say, hey, thank you so much for uh, this particular thing that God used in my life. And so, Stella, thank you uh, for taking the time to write that note, and I trust that it encourages the rest of you as well. Episode 494, Help Me Help My Difficult Relative. All right, so here's the question that my friend wrote in to me. He said, Rick, do you, I'm sorry, hey, Rick, we have a relative who is a substance abuser and does not listen to us when we speak into her life. Recently, she come to us for help. Now, I'm unsure if she is a Christian, though she attends a local church. At best, our relationship has been adversarial through the years. With the holidays coming, we will be meeting with her again, and she will be asking for a handout, which is the typical pattern. What is your advice for this person? We want to care for her, but she is typically angry with us unless she wants something. Any help with our relative would be appreciated. Thank you so much. And so let me ask you the question, do you have a problematic relative or friend that, that you may need to confront, as my friend here is suggesting in his question? Many of us do because we do live closer for extended periods. The, the folks that we live closer with for extended periods, it means that our mutual fallenness is going to rub off on each other. We're going to rub people the wrong way. Those people that live with us, those whom we associate with more often. Strangers on the train, people that we meet intermittently, people that we will never meet again. I mean, we can engage them and we can disembark the train at the next stop. But when you interact with someone year in and year out, there will be problems. And so what I want to do here is to share with you 10 thoughts that I gave my my friend who is struggling to be at peace with his relative. Now, before I get into those 10 thoughts, I want to give some preliminary thoughts for all of us that will help us to adapt what I'm sharing here uh, uh, to your situation, especially if you're struggling with a difficult friend. Now, what I would encourage you to do is to customize what I'm saying here to your unique situation because every situation is different. In some places, I will talk in generalities because I cannot give you a one-size-fits-all process. And so I would appeal to you to just ask the Spirit of God to illuminate your mind in accordance with God's Word. 
and to help you to customize what I'm sharing here to the uniqueness of the situation that is in your life. Everything, these 10 things, might not apply exactly to you. And so ask the Lord to help you, to give you the insight, the wisdom, the illumination, to understand what I'm saying, and then to adapt it to the uniqueness of that annoying friend or relative in your life. Now also, please filter what I'm sharing with you through God's Word. I trust that what I share will be uh, in, a, in alignment with God's Word, but I also want you to, to test these things and to vet these things in accordance to God's Word, because God's Word is what gives us our marching orders. And so as I talk about the application of God's Word, please keep God's Word in view, because again, uh, we don't want to deviate off the path of what God's Word teaches. I would also encourage you to talk to a trusted friend. If you have an annoying relative or friend in your life, talk to someone who is not a part of the situation, who is somewhat outside of it or adjacent to it, but they are competent in God's Word, and they're not afraid of you meaning they will share with you honestly uh, what they perceive in accordance with God's Word regarding your annoying friend or relative. It is not gossip to talk behind someone's back all the time, meaning there are some situations where it is appropriate where I would appeal to somebody to talk behind another person's back because you want to borrow brains. There is safety in a multitude of counselors, as God's Word says. And so if your motive is right, meaning that you're not slandering the individual, the difficult relative, that you're not being unkind, you're not being uncharitable, this is not gossipy content that you're passing along, but you are sincerely and genuinely looking for information from a person who is competent in God's Word, and they have the courage to speak to you honestly about their perspective of what is going on. That is not gossip at all. And so we want to be free to talk about other people within those confines. We're not slandering, and we're not gossiping. Our motive is as pure as we can understand our motives to be, and we're looking for help because ultimately the goal here is redemption to God to act redemptively in this person's life, and because we can see things through such a subjective lens uh, that our perspectives can be askew, and what we want is someone else looking in who is not so cloudy because they're not as close to the situation as we are, and so it may be wise to talk to a trusted friend. And then finally, these are my preliminary thoughts, listen to your conscience. You do not want to sin against your inner voice, and so you want to listen to your conscience. Now, I would assume that your conscience is in a line with God's Word. Pitch perfect for the Christian is when their inner voice and God's Word are perfectly aligned. So listen to your conscience. Now, if your conscience is in alignment with God's Word, then you must obey your conscience. And so your inner voice is important. And so you have parameters here. I've, I've asked you to do three things, four things, actually. I ask you to customize your situation uniquely 
Don't take everything that I say verbatim to your situation. Number two, I ask you to search the scriptures. Trust God's word more than you trust me. What does God's word say? I am just going to give you suggestions. Number three, talk to a competent friend who is not subjective about this situation. And then number four, listen to your your conscience, assuming that your conscience is aligned with God's Word. All right, so what we're talking about here, this is episode 494 at lifeovercoffee.com. Help me help my difficult relative. I am answering a question from a supporting member of our ministry, and he wants to know how to help a person who has an addiction who only shows up when they are in need. And of course, at this particular season of their life, they're showing up during the holidays. So here's my 10 considerations. One, prepare your heart. Prepare your heart. Now, what I mean by that is to guard your heart against unmet expectations. You see, what can happen with people who are close to us is that we have an expectation that they perform, uh, that they meet that expectation. Uh, There is a general department that we would expect from our friends and also our relatives. We don't expect them. We don't want them to be knuckleheads. We don't want them to manipulate us. We don't want them to use us. But in a situation like this, what you're going to experience is manipulation. Uh, This addicted person is going to use our supporting member. Uh, He's very clear on that. He's been down this road before. He knows uh, what he's going to get. But sometimes we can forget that, and we can have expectations for a person that they can't possibly meet at this time. And what I mean by that is that if a person is caught in a transgression, in this case, caught means addiction. In Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in a transgression, the modern terminology for that is an addiction. This person has an addiction. They have stepped into a bear trap that they have yet to extricate themselves from. The addiction holds them. It has them in that trap, in a vice. And because of that, they are going to perform in a certain way. If you expect them to be something different, uh, then you will have unmet expectations. And that's why I'm saying, before you say anything to them, you have to prepare your heart. You have to guard your heart against unmet expectations. You are hurt. And when we are hurt by what people do to us, we really need to do the work in our hearts before we do any kind of corrective action or confrontation. Now, really what has, what has to happen here is that we have to elevate our affection level for this person. We have to have a, an appropriate level of affection for this individual. Folks who have hung out with our ministry for any length of time, they have heard this, never confront anyone with whom you do not have affection. Now, I am not suggesting suggesting that you're going to have pure love for this addicted relative. You're not. 
you're not going to get to that place because there is annoyance. There is a historical pattern of disappointment. You know that you're going to be manipulated, and and that is always resident in you, but that is where you need to guard your heart because what will happen is that if you don't have appropriate affection for that person, then you will have elevated frustration for them. And then what will happen is that you will say something that will complicate the problem. And what we cannot do is complicate the problem because of our annoyance with that individual. There is a passage of Scripture, it's my favorite, on this subject, and it's 1 Corinthians, and it's the first nine verses. If you read those first nine verses with these thoughts in mind, you will see Paul's affection for some of the meanest people that he had ever dealt with, the most annoying people in his life, the most frustrating people, the most disappointing people, the most adversarial people outside of the Pharisees outside of the religious Jews. The most frustrating people in Paul's life were the Corinthians. And if you read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians, there's no way to walk away from that section of Scripture without realizing that Paul had great affection for these mean-spirited people. And so what we want to do is to emulate Paul's heart for annoying people. Now, that's not going to be an easy task, in fact, it may be such a, a challenging task that this might not be the season for you to confront your relative. You see, it takes time to gain affection for a difficult person. And I would imagine that all of us have been there to one degree or another. What I'm talking about here is something that you just can't amputate. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. There are some sins in our lives that we can amputate. It's called behavioral modification. Well, annoyance for someone is not amputatable, meaning you just can't flip a switch and I'm not going to be annoyed with you anymore. That's not how that sin works. That sin is deeper in the heart than something living on the external or the behavior of our life. Now, there are many things that you can amputate from your life. You can cut off your devices. You can stop going to the liquor store. You can stop looking at certain things, etc. Behavioral modification is an excellent idea, or what Jesus would talk about, the amputatable model of removing sin from our lives. But we know that sin also operates in a deeper level in our hearts. And so there's more than behavioral modification if we want transformation to happen in our lives. And so you're not going to be able to flip a switch and say, I now have affection for you. Therefore, you may need to spend a length of time in the closet asking God, Dear God, give me affection for this individual because I don't have it right now. And if you don't have it by Christmas or don't have it by Thanksgiving or if you don't have it by the time that you need to confront them, then I would appeal to you not to confront them because you're going to botch it up because your heart has not been prepared. It has not been appropriately guarded. 
Now, sometimes people will, will say in, in the context of what I'm sharing with you is that, you know, these people aren't born again, or you just don't know what they have done. I, I do understand that, and that's a good that's a good perspective to present because you have to wrestle through that. You have to wrestle through those two retorts. And so my response is, is that everybody is made in the image of God, regardless of who they are, regardless of what their relationship to God is like. If they're unregenerate, not born again, then they're adversarial to God. Their father is Satan. They walk in darkness. And if that's the case, you know, well, how could I have affection for them? I get it. I understand. Well, they're made in the image of God. Minimally, you can respect someone who is made in the image of God, even though you disagree 100% with everything that comes out of their mouths. This is what James was getting at in James chapter 3, verse number 9. He says, wherefore, we, we, we praise God with our lips, and, and then we defile James is talking about uh, people who are made in the image of God. He said, these things ought not to be. Uh, that is a contradiction when we can love God uh, with parts of our mouths and then uh, hate our enemies in a sinful way with the other parts, the very people who are made in the image of God. And of course, Jesus talked a lot about loving our enemies. And so minimally, the way that we elevate affection for someone, and maybe affection is not the word that you're looking for here. Maybe respect is the word, or honor them. I'm going to honor them because they are fellow image bearers. We have to keep the Imago Dei in view all the time, and the, the Imago Dei gives us the filter through which we will not be unkind toward other people. And so the first consideration is to prepare your heart before you confront them. Number two, find your starting point. Find your starting point. You always want to find your starting point before you begin uh, working with another individual or interacting with another individual. This is something that we teach our mastermind students in our school here at Life Over Coffee all the time. When you are, when someone comes to you for counseling, you have to find your starting point before you can begin. And so a question is, is she, is she saved? Now, what I'm really asking here, obviously, is if, if a person is born again, that is, that is a subjective analysis. There's really no way for us to know if anyone is authentically born again. We can see people who, like, I would assume that they're born again, and we see other people like, I'm not sure you're born again, and you can find the the exact opposite to be true. The person who didn't look like they were born again are, and the person who looks like they were born again are not. So I know that that is a subjective assessment. And so what I'm really asking you here is, is does this person, the annoying person in your life, do they manifest the authentic fruit of the Spirit? I mean, what kind of fruit is hanging from their limbs? Go to Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. You know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. And so I would encourage you, again, point number two, find your starting point. And you can do that by stepping back and observing the fruit in the individual's life. What do you see? How would you make your case to Jesus 
convincing Jesus that this person is a Christian or is not a Christian. You want to do careful diagnosis of the individual, and the reason is that if you don't know where to start with a person, or if you assume a person is something that they are not, then you will not begin at the correct place. It is essential for us to discern a person as much as we possibly can. We don't have objective knowledge. Uh, We don't have God's mind. We are not omniscient. All of our lenses uh, have some kind of discoloration on them, and so every interpretation that we have about an individual will be a little off or it will be insufficient. Even so, we must do the work to try to understand them as much as we possibly can understand a person so that we are beginning at the right place. It's like a, a, a car mechanic. If you drive your car in and say, fix my car, well, he needs to understand where the starting point is. Fix your car. Well, what's wrong with your car? And he begins an analysis so that he's not fixing the wrong thing, starting in the wrong place, assuming that something is when it is not. And so he wants to do a careful diagnosis to see exactly what the problem is as best he can understand the problem so he is at the appropriate starting point. And so number two, find your starting point with the individual. You must know where to begin with the person, the annoying person in your life. Not where she says she is or where she wished she were. And the reason I'm saying that is because, you know, our friend, as you, as you listen, as I read his question, uh, he says, she says she's a Christian. Okay, that's fine. I will assume that for right now, that you are a Christian. Therefore, it means this. It means these things. That's my starting point. But actually, before you do that, step back. If she says she's a Christian, well, look at the fruit of the Spirit. What's hanging from her limbs? And the fruit of the Spirit is an excellent template. If you're a Christian, there should be some manifestation of that fruit in her life. And let's say that none of that fruit exists in her life. Well, that's why I make this statement here. You must know where to begin with her, not where she says she is or where she wish she were. And so uh, uh, number two, the the second consideration is know your starting point. Number three, know the dividing line. And this is so important because there can be so much confusion and what I mean is the confusion between being, being a relative and how you relate to her. What happens so often with, with relatives? In this case, this gentleman is a relative to this addicted lady. And with our relatives, we can elevate being a relative even higher than being in God's family. Jesus would not do that. When they came to him and said, your mother and your brothers are outside, Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's those who do the will of God. 
Being a relative does not give you a special place to where you can do anything that you want to do and you can have full access to my life because you are a relative. Or I am required to give you money or to meet whatever expectation that you have on me because I am your relative. No, that's not the dividing line. Being a relative is not where we draw the line between relatives and everybody else. That's not the line. And so number three, know the dividing line. The only dividing line that matters is always those who do God's will and those who don't. That is the dividing line. Being a relative will cloud your judgment. But whether you see her as doing God's will or not, regardless of blood kin, you will know how to respond to her. If she is not doing God's will, then she's on the other side of the line. Regardless of what kind of card that she's carrying, I am a relative. Okay, great. I am glad that you are a relative of mine, but that is a secondary matter. The primary family is the family of God. And then within that family is those who are doing the will of God. Those who are not doing the will of God needs to be confronted with courage and with compassion. I am not making a case at all to be unkind to anyone. Go back to the Imago Day. If our hearts are rightly affected by God, then we will honor God's creation. We will honor the Imago Day, And so whenever I talk about confronting someone or correcting someone, it is always through the lens of the Imago Day. However, if they are not doing God's will and they say they are a Christian, there needs to be a rebuke in there at some point. If they are a relative and they are not Christians, well, they need our they need our evangelism. Uh, they are far worse than what they could ever imagine. Their problems are a lot greater than not getting money or, or not getting whatever expectation they're placing upon you. They are in a, a dark adversarial relationship with God, and that needs to be corrected. And so they may be a relative, but if they're not born again, they are in desperate straits. And so point number three, know the dividing line. And then number four, look for clues. Look at the fruit in her life. And so this is going back to the fruit of the Spirit, kind of, of what I was saying earlier about knowing your starting point. But I want to tease that out a little more and even give this its own consideration. Point number four, look for clues. How is she characterized? What, what is the primary patterns in her life? Is she characterized by anxiety, worry, bitterness, criticalness, gossip, anger, cynicism, substance abuse? Is she a time waster or a money waster? Does she have a vision for Christ or no vision or no passion for Christ? It, it, does she come across as hopeless, a person who is experiencing hopelessness? Or is she characterized by the fruit of the Spirit? It, it, are the patterns in her life look like love and joy and, and peace? I'm not making a, a salvific a, a, a salvific analysis here, 
as I was earlier about knowing your starting point. But now you really need to know the kind of person that this is. Now, this approach of assessing her with that kind of granular level detail about her characterizations, the patterns in her life, it's not judging her. It's discerning her. You want to discern her. Go back to the automobile mechanic. He's not judging the car. <laughs> no, he's not judging the car. He wants to be meticulous. He wants to discern the car because he wants to fix the car. Sometimes there can be such a Christian deportment, a Christian discretion in our lives. And even worse, you will have people who will say, Judge not, lest you be judged. You know, they take uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 7, verse 1. They take it out of context, and then it just cuts you off at the knees where you cannot look at them at all. You cannot assess them. You cannot diagnose them. If you do not judge someone, let me say it this way. If you do not judge someone, then you don't love them. Now, I would modify the word judge. If you do not charitably judge someone, if you do not kindly judge someone, if you do not with courage charitably judge someone, then you do not love them. You want to judge them, assess them, discern them, whatever synonym you want to insert right there. We have to do that if we're going to help them. Therefore, point number four, look for clues. You're looking for fruit in her life. You're looking for characterizations. You're looking for patterns. You really do because now you want to help her and you want to position. You found your starting point. You have a pretty good idea what your starting point is. Now you want to look for these patterns in her life so that you can come alongside her and maybe, maybe would God would use you uh, to help her. Number five, determine spiritual influences. What are the tributaries that flow into her life? What are the current shaping influences in her life? We're all being shaped by someone, something, many things. Everybody's being shaped. We, we, there's no other option. We're all being shaped. But the question is, what or whom is shaping us? Many people are shaped by the zeitgeist uh, in our culture. And that's an awful shaping influence. There are better shaping influences. Does she belong to a local church? Okay, she does. Uh, how is her attendance? Is she one in four, two in four, four in four as far as attending during the month, uh, every week? Uh, what kind of church is it? What do they believe theologically? How is the church engaging her? How are they helping her? Is there anyone helping her? Who speaks into her life? Who is she submitted to? Who are the primary influencers in her life? People can, as they say, go to church, but it's more of a sitting and soaking event, and it's really not a spiritual engagement. Basically, all that they have done is ticked the box, maybe to feel good about themselves or maybe to, uh, to remain 
uh, in a good perspective among a peer group, and so this is what we do. But, but, but here I'm talking about having a gospel edge. You're not showing up at that building just to show up, just to tick a box, just to have a passive experience. No, you're there because you want to worship God. You want to engage God. You want to love God and love others. You want to submit to those who have authority over you. You want to hear that teaching and apply that teaching in, their, in, in the person's life. And so number five, determine the spiritual influences in this person's life. Now, again, as I was saying earlier, you'll have to customize this to the uniqueness of the situation or the individual that you want to help. I think we probably already know the answer to our supporting member who has an addicted relative. Whatever her church attendance is, it is a passive exercise with very little, with no spiritual edge with no spiritual engagement and virtually no submission to the authority of God's Word or the leadership of that local body. We probably already know the answer for this person, but how would you customize this answer for the annoying person in your life? You have to understand their spiritual influences. Number six, what helps best? What's the best kind of help that you can give them based on this data that you have collected from your assessments of this individual? Will you practically help her or will you be assisting her in her addiction? Sometimes you want to help even though you know getting her through a hard spot will not make the person better. And so we want to make sure that we use wisdom in the type of help that we provide. Let me give you three possible options for helping a person like this who has an addiction, like my friend's relative. One, don't help her at all. Don't give her what she is asking for. Just do not provide help. Now, that may be the answer. There are some people where you have extended and overextended yourself. You have a historical record of providing help, and they have a historical record of not following through, persevering, and it by all objective measures, as much as one can be objective, it's just best not to help her at this time. That may be an option. And so again, consideration number six here, what helps best? I'll give you three options. One is don't help her at all. Number two, help her through the tough spot, even though you know she's using you. Now, I've had situations like this where I know that the person uh, that is asking for help is using me. It's not a good faith conversation. It's not a good faith relationship. They are manipulating me. But there have been times when I have actually helped them, even though it's, it's really obvious what they are doing. And the reason is, is because this option of helping them through a tough spot, even though they're, they're using you, perhaps you can maintain the connection with them, providing a better opportunity in the future to be redemptive. For example, the prodigal's dad helped his son, though there is no question in that story that the son was using the dad. Now, sometimes that's what you will do, even though you know the person is not operating in good faith. This is a wisdom issue. Now, by the way, this would also bring you back around to why you would want to talk to a competent friend, a person who's competent in God's Word, 
as you wrestle through the decision-making process in this. There's a lot to think through. And so, uh, again, this is consideration number six. What helps best? One option, don't help at all. The second option is help her through a tough spot, even though you're being manipulated, because what you're trying to do is to maintain connectivity for a future redemptive opportunity, like the prodigal son's dad actually did have a future opportunity with that child. Sometimes you you love them, even though that you know this is not the best way for them to go, because... Uh, the hope is they will come back to you sometime in the future when they face plant in the hog lot. By the way, this is uh, happens a lot in premarital counseling. I've done a good bit of premarital counseling, and in a lot of that premarital counseling, it's pretty obvious that uh, this is not a good idea for this couple to get married, or they are really immature. But there are things that I, I will not say, but I will do the premarital counseling because I'm trying to maintain a relationship with them when they finally get a clue, uh, when, when this romantic notion of love, this Disney-esque idea of love, when it begins to uh, dissipate or implode, and then they wake up uh, sometime in the future and realize, oh my, this is what I'm doing. Now I'm serious now I want to change. Maybe I will go back to uh, the person who did premarital counseling because now I'm ready to listen. I wasn't listening then. And so sometimes you will do that for a person because you're looking for future hope, a future possibility. And then the third option could be help her because she is genuine and she wants to change. Now that's the best option, but unfortunately that's not always the case. And so this is consideration number six what helps best. And now consideration number seven, you're looking for patterns and episode with this person. And what I mean by that is you want to distinguish between a pattern of living versus an episode in their life. This goes back to characterization that I was talking about earlier, but again, I want to bring this one out and give it its own consideration because you really have to discern these things. Is she always a problem person? That's a pattern in this individual's life. You look in the rearview mirror and all you can see is problem after problem after problem again. Or is this a unique, annoying situation, rarely repeated situation uh, that you find yourself in? If it's a pattern of living in this individual's life, then maybe you want to confront them because this is just a pattern. If it is an episode, on the other hand, maybe you can overlook it and do what you need to do to help a friend out. Parents do this all the time as well. We look for patterns and episodes in our children's lives. We don't always want to be correcting our children. That's bad. And so parents overlook a lot. Because there's these episodic moments in a child's life where they just do the dumb thing. It's like, seriously, that was dumb. But you overlook it because it's not connected to any kind of pattern. And you want to overlook it because you don't want to always be nickel and diming your children and pinging them for every little thing that they do wrong. And so you can overlook episodes. But then what you'll have sometimes in your parenting, those of you who have kids, you've seen this, is like there's a pattern here. 
one knuckle-headed thing that's connected to the next knuckle-headed thing that's connected to the next and the next. And it's like we need to intervene here because we need to break the linkage in their knuckle-headedness. And so you want to distinguish between patterns and episodes in the person's life. And that's consideration number seven. Number eight, pray for her end. Pray for the end. I talked about the hog lot earlier. That's the end. Ask the father to bring her to the end of herself. Like the prodigal son, your best hope is if she does face plant in the hog lot of her life. And the hope is, is that it will bring her to her senses. And so pray for the end to come, that she comes to the end of herself. Now, I have seen this a zillion times in counseling. One of the stories that I tell uh, is a gentleman that I went to school with. In Bible college, we went through four years together to get our theology degree. He graduated, and then later on, he became a drug addict. Many years later, I I lost touch with him, did not see him, and then he showed up in my counseling office maybe uh, maybe a decade later or something like that. And he was a full-blown drug addict. Don't know how he got there uh, from graduating with a theology degree, but he got there, and he looked 10 years older than what he was. And I told him that, that, you know, if you do not change, I mean, this is going to take your life. What I did not know is that he would be dead within 24 hours. As I heard later that he had died uh, in a rented uh, hotel room with syringes around the floor and so forth, and, and he died uh, uh, from his addiction. I'm not praying for that kind of end uh, but with my friend, I do believe that my addicted friend was a Christian, and and I would I'm not going to be surprised to see see him in heaven. And it it seems from ground level, it, it it seems from down here in the weeds where we live, it seems like that was God's mercy to him, that his addiction had gone on so long, he had opportunity after opportunity to change. And then had that final meeting with me 24 hours earlier, and he was not going to change. And it appears down here in the weeds that God in his mercy just took him on home to heaven because he was not going to change. It seems harsh to die that way, but it's also merciful to die that way if this is true. And I will assume that I will find my friend John uh, in heaven when I, I get there. And so you want to pray for her end. Now, you're not praying for her physical demise. Uh, you're praying for God's will. And then we will leave the details up to the Lord. But dear Lord, will you bring her to the end of herself? Because there is a characterization. There is a pattern in her life. And something needs to happen. And so would you bring her to the hog lot? And I just pray, in thy wrath, remember mercy. In thy wrath, remember mercy, and give her that soft landing, uh, if you will. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Number eight, pray for her in. And then number nine, talk with a friend. Now, this is going back to the trusted friend that I had in my preliminary thoughts for you. But I, I want to tease that out just a little bit. Find a friend. Find, some, find someone who will confront you. 
about any wrong attitudes that you may have. This is so, it's so critical because sometimes we've all been there that you can be so frustrated with the person that you're talking to or the person you're married to or the person that you're related to that you develop a bad attitude toward them and may not even perceive it because it's a habituation now. It's a pattern in your life. This friend that you talk to must also help you to work through any false guilt that you may have. And, and, and false guilt, uh, our culture calls it gaslighting, to where the addicted person in this scenario gaslights my friend, manipulates my friend. Why don't you help me? You never help me. You live a posh life and I live this life. That's heaping a false guilt on you, not a guilt that God gives, because there's no sin. There's no sin, there's no guilt. But people can can create a narrative that they push on you, and if you're not careful, you could start taking on false guilt. And so you need a friend for two reasons here. One, to confront you for any bad attitude that you may have about this person. And then number two, any false guilt that you may have taken on through the gaslighting or the manipulations of another person. Now, you don't need a rubber stamping friend who will not look you in the eye and speak about these things. And so make sure that you have a friend who loves you enough that they will speak the truth in love. Number nine, talk with a friend. And then finally, number 10, plan to confront her. Plan, make a plan to confront her. Now, based on what my friend said about his addictive relative, he will probably have to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with her. He needs to have a plan to confront her based on what he presented in the question that I shared with you earlier. And if he does this, then here are four things that I want him to keep in mind. And if you if you are going to confront an annoying relative or an annoying friend, and here's four things that I want you to keep in mind. Number one, don't confront people you dislike or are not trying really hard to love. Try really hard to love them. Don't confront people that you dislike. I've talked about this earlier. You won't be able to love her ideally. You won't be able to like her like you might like a non-annoying friend. But you've got to be working at honoring this person, respecting this person as far as the Imago Dei, minimally as far as the Imago Dei. Number two, understand that eternal consequences are far worse than temporal ones. My friend uh, who died, uh, and again, I trust that he uh, is in heaven, but there are eternal consequences for the unchanging person. And if she is not born again, uh, then whatever disappointment that she experiences by your confrontation, will it, it won't even register compared to what she will experience in eternity in hell. So don't let your fear of their reaction inhabit, inhibit you from cooperating with the Lord in altering her eternal destination. And then number three, make it a three-part conf uh, confrontation. I love you. I'm confronting you, and I love you. That's the sandwich. Begin with, I, 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 I have affection for you. However you want to communicate this, I love you. Then you confront them, and then you end. Let them know, 
that you loved them. Uh, that is the three-part corrective process. You have to, do, by the way, uh, parents will do this as well when they are disciplining their children. You want to right up front, I love you. Then you confront them, discipline them, and then you remind them again that you love them. Uh, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so we want to make sure the, the love sandwiches the confrontation. And then number four, never hit and run. Be sure you follow up later, affirming your love for her. There have been many times where I've called someone that I've confronted the next day, maybe emailed them the next day, depending on the relationship. Email's not the best way to do this, but depending on context, depending on the relationship. But a day or two later, follow up. Because what happens in a confrontation situation is that our minds can get cluttered. Our minds can gridlock like a, a busy intersection, and we can't think clearly because the confrontation happens, or it maybe it gets heated and we don't say things like we meant to say, and or it's not said well. And so, and then, you know, later that night or the next day, it's like, oh man. I shouldn't have said it that way, or I should have said that. So you want to follow up later. Don't hit and run. Uh, don't, don't confront like we do on social media. Uh, virtually everything on social media is hit and run. D don't do that. Uh, and so be ready to follow up later, especially affirming your love for this annoying person and then any clarity or misunderstanding. You may be surprised at how wonderful and redemptive that conversation can be. I want to give you a final approach, a pro tip here. When making decisions about confronting someone uh, for bad behavior, make sure you keep God in view not fear of future outcomes. Here's what happens. Uh, sometimes we can have the mini-Messiah complex. The mini-Messiah complex is we want to save them. Uh, we want to create a soft landing in their life. We are afraid of what these consequences are going to cause for this person. You know, faith is like a, a telescope, and it looks at an object. The object of our faith must, must always be God. We make our decisions because uh, uh, with faith in God. But if you're looking through the telescope and if you, you see a potential negative outcome for this individual, then what you're, you're, the decision that you make will be based on that outcome. It won't be faith in God, but it will be faith in what could potentially happen to that person in the future. If we make our decisions because we're hedging our bets, because we're gauging and trying to control future outcomes, because we see a future negative outcome in this person's life. And because we see that adverse outcome in this person's life, we're going to make our decisions today based on trying to circumvent that bad outcome. That's a mini-Messiah complex. No, we make our decisions by trusting God and based on all the things that I've said here, then you can make that decision. Like, this is how I'm going to confront you. Here are the consequences of your actions. And then you trust God because you're not trying to control the outcome. You're trusting God for the outcome. This is episode 494 at lifeovercoffee.com. The title of it is Help Me Help My Difficult Relative. Thank you so much. And 
uh, I appreciate you uh, working through this, and if we can serve you in any other way, I would just encourage you to get on our website and do searches. Uh, there's so much as far as conflict resolution and helping people and dealing with annoying people. Uh, so take advantage of our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com, and then check out this resource here. Help me. Help my difficult relative. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.